Before we start, um, let me just say on behalf of us all um, to thank Kieran very, very much for a very informative um, presentation of assisted suicide and euthanasia. I think it's helped us all appreciate and understand the dangers, the warnings that are there. And as I was listening, it just struck me this is a legal holocaust to some extent what is being presented and what is happening in Holland and um, essentially what will, will come down the tracks here. Um, I do have a couple of questions um, here which I can start with um, and if there are other questions from the floor you want to come back on anything that is said, um, please do. So the first one is what can we learn from the Christians in Holland and how they have faced the whole legislation process, how they face the ongoing issue today, and what can we learn from the Christian church? Well, um, interesting question. Thanks for that. Let me come at it from this angle. Hope Ireland, I mentioned them earlier, but I didn't say a whole lot about them. And um, they had their, I, I mentioned that they had their inaugural conference at the RDS last June. And I think they're a very new organization, like they were founded in 2014 by Dr. Kevin Fitzpatrick, who was a paraplegic since 1973, and he died in January of this year. I'm getting to the answer with this now. But um, Hope Ireland, they're an independent, disability-led, single-focus organization. They are affiliated to the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition International, and um, they had, at their conference, they invited people from the Netherlands, from Belgium, from Luxembourg, uh, from the USA, to speak uh, about their experiences um, in relation to trying to oppose uh, these things. What we can learn from the Christians, there's a very negative lesson to be learned from Dutch, from Dutch Christians. Um, uh, the Dutch... Uh, many churches in Holland, you, you can't say certain things at all. Like you'll never hear a sermon in most churches ever about sexual morality. Um, because they've gone past all that now. And uh, a lot of the churches are liberal. Even churches that we think are conservative evangelical churches. There are reformed churches in the Netherlands. Uh, but they're, the, mostly Dutch Christians are allergic to um, Reformed theology uh, because of their historical experience of it, whatever that might be. So we have to learn that uh, in our churches we need to continue uh, to address ethical and moral issues. Uh, the leaders of the churches, those uh, entrusted with response responsibility to preach and teach must hold it before the people uh, not all the time you know we don't want to be like we don't want kind of anti-homosexual sermons you know that are homophobic and we don't want to be known for just that but we don't want to exclude it um, you can't really speak about euthanasia in Holland now many Christians accept it because it's part of their normal lives and has been for a long time going back to the early 1990s, late 1980s. So some people have grown up with that. So what we, can, what we need to do is we need
need to um, we need to educate people. There, there was a there was a lecture given in a Canadian university uh, by some people who oppose euthanasia. Before the lecture, um, they polled uh, the people attending the lecture, and the majority were in favour of euthanasia. After the lecture, they polled them again and found that now a majority um, were not in favour. They were influenced by what they heard. Uh, when the, um, uh, the option of palliative care and, um, uh, was presented to them, uh, when the reality of uh, uh, where, where this kind of choice leads was presented to them, uh, they changed their minds. And I think there is an opportunity to influence us as Christians to help people around us in conversations, wherever it might be, in the workplace, uh, in the college, um, to, to influence people uh, to understand uh, that this is actually very bad for society and very bad for them. And I think that's a good starting place for us as Christians. Thank you. Um, another question. Um, I guess it's driven from a liberal agenda. Um, is there any economical um, benefit for those who practice assisted suicide in terms of costs and things like that? Is that a, an area that... It's a business. That, yeah. Um, death is a business. And um, uh, somebody asked me this uh, during the break and I was explaining that, say, Dignitas in Zurich, for example, is a wealthy organization. They are now allowed to go into care homes um, uh, to administer assisted suicide. Uh, for elderly patients. Um, that's a recent development. Uh, but a lot of people who go from other jurisdictions, especially to avail of the service and Dignitas, um, are elderly people who live alone, uh, tired of life, or have been just diagnosed with a terminal illness and they're afraid and they, um, they're afraid of pain, afraid of they just feel life is not worth living. They go, they will sign over the deeds of their houses to Dignitas and things like that. So they, they do make a lot of money and they do charge thousands for this service as well. So it, there is a definite economic side to it. And a lot of the people who have been um, uh, killed at Dignitas uh, have been cremated and their ashes were dumped in urns in a nearby lake. And uh, I'm talking now of hundreds um, and hundreds of urns and um, a nurse who worked for Dignitas reported this and the lake was dredged and these urns were found. So that's the kind of death with dignity that Dignitas are offering, dumping you in a lake, you know. I don't know. Um, I don't know, but I know that they can avail of the service, and um, I, I just don't know the answer to that question. Sorry, sorry, just, sorry. just, yes. just for those who are elderly and can't hear so well. <laughs> um, the question was, uh, what happens to those who are teens 
and they request assisted suicide, who's going to pay for that? Yeah, yeah you, you answered the question yourself, I think. Um, I, I don't really know the answer to that. But, um, yeah, it's part of medical care in Holland now. Um, for, uh, it's so common, you know, that uh, it's, it's not hugely expensive. It's not like, say, Dignitas or uh, things. Like, everything's expensive in Switzerland, um, especially the Toblerone. Uh, but, um, pardon? <laughs> okay, okay, very good. Thanks for that. Burr will be down. Uh, um, for, for example, now, a, a, a woman in the Netherlands uh, applied um, for uh, medical treatment that was very expensive. Okay, um, some new medical treatment. And um, uh, she was disqualified. She was told she wasn't eligible to have this, that it was too expensive in the post by letter, and the letter included a brochure on assisted suicide. Yeah. The same thing happened to a woman in Oregon who applied for uh, medication, which was again uh, beyond her means and um, to treat her condition, and she was sent a prescription, an actual prescription for suicide pills. This is where we're at now. Who pays for 16-year-olds? I don't know just don't know the answer to that, but I do know it's part of medical care, so-called, in the Netherlands. One of the um, criteria you mentioned, there were, there, I think there were nine, yeah. and I certainly want to get the list of them again yeah, sure, if sure. anybody else does afterwards, yeah, yeah. but one of them was that um, somebody has to be terminally ill mm -hmm. um, before they are allowed to go through with it. How, how do they actually assess somebody who's terminally ill? So. Like if somebody does have cancer, for example, they may be told you've got three months to live, but equally they could say you have five years to live. That's right. So at what level yeah. or what stage? Yeah. Is well, initially um, the criteria was that um, you, you were terminally ill and you had six months, approximately six months to live. Um, but you know, diagnosis and prognosis can be wrong. And we all know, I'm sure, people who have been diagnosed with a terminal illness um, and they have, um, uh, they've lived much longer than the, uh, than the prognosis. Uh, and we know other people who've been told they've got two years to live and they live for two weeks. So you, you just don't know. Good question. Um, but now it doesn't matter now anyway, you don't have to be even ill, let alone terminally ill, and uh, you don't have to have a prognosis of six months um, or anything like that. Yeah. Um, Kevin, please. Yeah. Is there any body, body organization that put in place to try to at least look like they're imposing these regulations? You're saying that they're totally Yeah, there's an over. Sorry, I just sort of repeat okay. the question again. Um, is there a body or an organisation within Holland, and does the same exist here, to monitor and make sure that they are not going down the route that they are? 
just just Holland where it's being practiced? Yeah, there's a there's a, an oversight committee. Um, I, I kind of am tempted to laugh at this; it's so ridiculous. But there are an oversight committee which consists of there are kind of regional oversight committees that consist of um, doctors, like two doctors on the committee, two lawyers on the committee, and um, a philosophical expert. Um, whatever that means, you know, um, and they're meant to have some opinion about um, uh, the whole issue. But you're, you're not going to be appointed to a committee like that unless you approve. Um, doctors don't, they don't function, they don't work, those oversight committees don't, don't work. There have been some prosecutions, but those who have been prosecuted uh, have got a rap on the knuckles and they've been told they haven't got uh, sentences or custodial sentences or any sentences, and they've been told just don't do that again. Lots of doctors in the Netherlands don't, when they're, um, it's very bureaucratic, uh, assisted suicide and euthanasia, and you have to fill in forms and um, ostensibly to meet certain criteria. A lot of doctors don't bother um, filling in the forms and they put down the underlying cause of death as something else, like pneumonia or something like that, rather than assisted suicide. So even the statistics that, say, 5,000 people last year uh, were terminated by euthanasia and assisted suicide, uh, and that doesn't involve deep, continuous sedation, which is another matter. Um, even those, that 5,000 that we know about, um, that's much less than the reality of what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Lady there, please, yeah. Trish. So the question there is, what about those who are struggling with a mental illness? Um, how do they reach a decision themselves about requesting suicide and how is that monitored and is there anything in place um, to assess that? Well, obviously for a lot of people, it's other people who make those decisions for them. Um, you know, uh, people who might have a, a, an elderly parent who is suffering from Alzheimer's um, their distress uh, is an issue uh, that they present to the doctor and say, look, he's only going to live a short length of time anyway, can we do anything about this? And it's accommodated. The thing about the Netherlands is that um, long before euthanasia was practiced or, or legalized, it was widely practiced, as I said, uh, the, the research was conducted. We don't have this kind of research in Ireland. We don't know um, how many people are being killed uh, or that, you know, what exactly is going on. The Dutch tell the truth, at least. Um, you know, when they were asked, the doctors were asked, are you killing people? They said, yes. And, uh, we, and we've been doing this for 10 years, you know. And we want it regulated because we don't want to be criminalized. Um, I'm not too sure that we would get the same kind of response in Ireland. Um, but uh, those decisions, obviously, some people don't have a capacity to make a decision, um, uh, and the decision is made for them. Um, it, it's, a, it's a kind of a personal, sensitive issue for me, because uh, 
my elder brother, uh, he died a couple of years ago now, almost, and um, uh, he was Down syndrome. And I have a sister who's Down syndrome as well. And I brought up this Bourbon biscuit to tell you a little funny story because the, the whole night needs a little bit of livening up. And um, uh, my mother never bought biscuits at home. Um, we, we had an orchard and she always baked apple tarts and rhubarb tarts and all of that. And it was lovely. And then one, um, one time my mother went to visit my aunt who, and oh yeah, my aunt used to give us a tin of biscuits. USA biscuits, I think it was, and they had these bourbons, you see. And then one time in June, um, uh, my mother went to visit my aunt, and my aunt produced this plate of um, biscuits. And it had, and Michael, my brother, he reached out and he picked up uh, the bourbon biscuit, and he said, "Ah, Christmas." <laughs> and I never look at a bourbon biscuit without thinking of Michael and uh, and that story. And, uh, but, you know, um, Down syndrome uh, fetuses now are being aborted because it can be detected. And um, so there are very few of them in the Netherlands. And um, should one be born, um, uh, the parents have the right uh, to say, um, you know, this is too much suffering for us and have that life. That's kind of uh, infanticide. Uh, euphemistically redescribed as euthanasia. Other people make those decisions for them. Yeah. Ralph at the back. Uh, so a number of countries have gone through and Netherlands as well as the United States. So there's different countries like the Netherlands different states in the U.S., other places that have gone down the road of euthanasia. Are there any examples of countries that have started down that road but have pulled back? Very good question, Ralph. And um, to use a medical term, uh, it has been suggested that the situation in Oregon is having an Im immunological effect. Uh, that other states in America are looking at what's going on in Oregon and it's preventing them from going down that road. Uh, because what has happened in Oregon is an unmitigated disaster. Uh, one uh, woman who had a stroke uh, was um, uh, her daughter uh, uh, wanted her to be euthanized and so the doctor uh, gave her Valium and morphine um, in, lar in large doses. And uh, when that didn't work, um, uh, he used a magnet to interfere with her pacemaker. And, um, uh, and when that didn't work, he suffocated her. So um, he was given six months, uh, a six-month um, suspended sentence and he's now practicing medicine. So people are looking on and it, it's preventative in that way. But there's an example in Australia, Austra one of the states in Australia, I think it's Queensland, you can check the book, I forget now. Um, they introduced assisted suicide um, and you know one of the doctor death people, um, uh, Nitschke, um, uh, lobbied for it and it was introduced. Uh, but uh, they've changed the law, they've gone back 
because they've seen that it was just a terrible what it was, you know. So Australia is a good example. Peter? Um, so the question there is in regards to the Netherlands' response to euthanasia, the church seems to be reluctant in speaking out. So how, is we, how do we as a church here in Ireland respond to that? Is it better that we together come collectively, the evangelical church, underneath an organization like Hope Ireland, is it? Yeah, yes. underneath Hope Ireland. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay, thanks, Peter. Um, the Care Not Killing um, uh, group in the UK, uh, they're, they're a broad coalition as well, an alliance. They have Christians as members, like the Christian Medical Fellowship, for example, are members. Uh, but they're really a kind of an independent um, group, and they, they're a single focus. Um, I think it's very, the, the experience of care not killing is very interesting because they learned over a long period of time that it was better to be a single focus issue group uh, and not to be uh, a group that focuses on abortion, um, uh, euthanasia and assisted suicide, um, and uh, bioethics, um, embryonic research, all of that sort of thing. Um, so, and they also felt that the use of specifically Christian language was unhelpful in kind of winning the public debate, uh, whatever we might think about that. Um, uh, so uh, I, I do think uh, a coalition, a broad coalition is needed, and I do think that specifically Christian language, like sermonic kind of language about the issue, might not be the most helpful way of uh, communicating, we can still defend the ethical principles and the morality of this issue, knowing um, our basis, our biblical basis and our motivation, uh, but not necessarily to, to do that. The Hope Ireland, I'm sure you wouldn't be banned uh, if you're able-bodied, uh, but um, I, I've, I've seen pictures of them, a lot of them are in wheelchairs. So um, I'm sure it's, it's open to people who are not, they're relatively new. Uh, you could get involved with an organization like that or somebody should really um, uh, develop uh, an association where you know, we as evangelical Christians can comment on these issues. You know, it's like very often you have fuddy-duddy people brought in uh, on Channel 4 News uh, you know, the case of Tony Tomlinkinson, uh, who had locked-in syndrome. It was very sad. 
case, and he, he died since. But Channel 4 has an agenda, you know. They've had very good agendas now. They, they um, champion the cause of disabled people. And, uh, but they also promote things, like they had Terry Pratchett in as well. And uh, they promote uh, this issue, you know, of assisted suicide in euthanasia. And, they, and Tony Tom Lincolnson uh, was used in that way. Uh, a kind of a real worst case scenario and they had some fuddy-duddy vicar in to talk about it and uh, they never seemed to want to get somebody you know equally matched in you know to kind of give the opposite view there is a media bias that we have to deal with you need to be media savvy some people I forget the former Archbishop um, of Canterbury's name Carey the first name can't, won't come to me I won't call him Lord, especially not today. Today is the anniversary of uh, the 2000 of the 1916 um, uh, rising, so uh, uh, we we couldn't call him Lord Carey. But I'm tempted to say William. But he's changed his mind. He opposed vigorously he, in the House of Lords. He spoke and he opposed um, euthanasia and assisted suicide. But he's changed his mind now, and you have that kind of equivocation coming from certain quarters, which is very unhelpful. But it, it seems to me that while there are others like Hope Ireland who are speaking out, that as a church we can't afford not to speak out um, ourselves individually and as churches together. Um, I'm not sure if there's another question. Here's just one more. Um, how can we convince a non-believer about the sanctity of life? Uh, yeah, um the secular worldview has taken root, hasn't it? It's taken hold, and uh, we're definitely facing an uphill battle, but it's the work of God, and uh, the Holy Spirit can prevail, and we're called to be faithful in uh, proclaiming the truth and communicating the truth to, not necessarily through proclamation, but through conversation and through the way we live. and. Uh, but, you know, if it, it's about building relationships. It's about seizing the opportunities that we have to talk about the Lord and to share, you know, um, something about the value of life. I think a lot of people are looking for community, belonging, hope. You know, it's a bleak world out there without Jesus. Um, last one, Graham. Thank you. Is there a connection between abortion and euthanasia? So where countries have legalized abortion, does it then follow that euthanasia is legalized? Um, uh, abortion has been legal in the UK since 1966. It's a, again a very good question because the criteria for introducing abortion was again very strict. It was meant to be a kind of um, a therapeutic um, intervention uh, you know to save the life of the mother and that a side effect uh, could be abortion uh, but now you know um, people have driven a coach and six horses through that legislation and um, what you have now is abortion on demand a form of post-sex contraception whatever the small print might say 
That's the reality. And you can look back then to abortion and you can look at the strict criteria and how that event again uh, was diluted and diluted down uh, and, and it has become now just um, a casual thing. And most abortions are not performed for medical reasons. They're performed for social reasons. I'm going to just hold the question time there and formally bring the evening to a conclusion. Um, please do talk to Kieran if you've got more questions. Do have a look at his book um, at a good offer tonight for ten euro. And again, on behalf of us all, just to thank Kieran very much for helping us in our thinking and begin the process of preparing ourselves for what is coming, and uh, certainly for all the knowledge and. Um, yeah, just your discernment, Kieran, tonight. Uh, certainly, thank you so much indeed. There's also a recording of tonight as well, so if you go on to the Carrigaline Baptist Church, carrigalinebaptist.org, uh, you'll find a recording um, sometime tomorrow or even tonight, if Ralph gets to it. <laughs> um, so I'm going to close in prayer. <laughs>